The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Beauteous Sprout Edition. It's Wednesday, January 3rd, 2018. Oh, my. On today's show, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri is the new indie film from playwright and filmmaker Martin McDonough. We discuss it as part of our Oscar nom run-up. And then the documentary film pioneer Errol Morris has been making hybrid kinds of films uh, really since he began with Thin Blue Line. Uh, His latest, Wormwood, is part documentary, part period feature film, uh, and it's derived from the true story behind the mysterious death of Frank Olson, the man given LSD without his consent or knowledge by the CIA in 1953. And finally, it's that time of year again. We discuss Slate's movie club with Dana Stevens. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Um, And Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Happy New Year. I heard on the train this morning, the train in, the uh, the subway conductor said, welcome back with every stop of the train, which I found very refreshing. And I love that she was acknowledging that everyone on that train was was having that feeling of gearing up after a a week of sloth and lethargy. Well, welcome back. (laughs) Welcome back, (laughs) us. Welcome back, you all. Welcome back, Cotter. Caught her too. <laughs> well, all right. Charging ahead then. Uh, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri stars Frances McDormand as Mildred Hayes, a woman on a grim and uh, rather monomaniacal quest to find out who raped, killed, and incinerated her teenage daughter. When it seems to her that the local police have uh, all but given up on the case, she purchases the eponymous Three Billboards on which she posts provocative statements aimed at uh, the uh, cops' incompetence and indifference, particularly at Chief Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson. What follows is uh, hard to describe in some ways, a dark comedy, a Greek tragedy. We'll get into it, I'm sure. But first, let's listen to a clip. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's definitely civil rights laws prevents that. Well, Dana, let me turn to you first. So 2017, I think we can all agree, is pretty strong year, maybe even a, a really strong year for movies, in, indie movies in particular. Um, uh, this one was, I think, somewhat divisive uh, in its reception. Some people included it rather firmly on their 10 best list. Other people excluded it with the equal vehemence. Uh, where did you fall on this? What did you make of this movie? Well, it's not on my 10 best list. I did give it a positive review back when it came out a couple months ago. And in the months since that release, I think I've distanced myself a little bit from it, both because of the critical, I wouldn't call it backlash, that's too glib of a term, but really the the, the critical division and problematization of of aspects of the movie that we can get into. As you can hear from that clip, it is really funny. And that's something that the writer-director Martin McDonough, who's better known as a playwright than as a a filmmaker, this is his his third movie, um, that's something that he can always do well, is kind of jerk the audience from black comedy to tragedy to violence. He's he's kind of a tone shifter maestro par excellence. And I think the movie does work incredibly well on that level and for Frances McDormand's performance. Uh, This movie keeps shape-shifting in my mind. Frances McDormand's performance is so good. And in fact, most of the acting is so good. The acting from Woody Harrelson is good. The acting from Sam Rockwell as a no-good cop is good. I mean, the acting is good, whatever you think of the writing of the character and the structure of the plot. Um, Peter Dinklage has a great small role. John Hawks also. Every single person in every small role is great. And that's kind of a Martin McDonough thing, too, is that good actors like to work with him and he likes to bring the best out of them. And you can see why, because each scene is amazing, taut, funny, dark, little tone-shifting moment that 
would be so fun to play, and the performances are good. But I come away from the movie, having thought about it now for about a week, feeling like it's an uncanny valley simulation of an excellent movie. Like, it has a bunch of the components, it's all almost there, but I'm not sure whether it has anything interesting to say about what it's ostensibly about. And given that it doesn't, some of the other problems with it and its treatment of women and people of color are beginning to bother me more in retrospect. We should lay out briefly what some of those problems are. Right. And to get into what some of those vague issues are that we keep mentioning without getting into, I mean, for one thing, there's a there's a backstory established early on that Sam Rockwell, who's an incompetent, uh, I don't know how what you'd call him, an incompetent, drunken, racist cop who works in the Ebbing, Missouri Police Department, but is also sort of a misfit protege of the Woody Harrelson police chief character, right? As screwed up as he is, there's something, you know, that's sort of a I guess, endearing or redeemable about him. And that becomes part of the problem of the movie, the extent to which he is or is not redeemed for violent acts that he both perpetrated before the movie starts that people refer to often against black suspects in custody, although we don't see any of that happen, and really bad acts of violence that we see him undertake in this movie, which I won't spoil what they are or whom they're against. He commits, you know, pretty considerable acts of sadism and like, you know, uh, antisocial uh, behavior in the extreme before having a kind of you know ca- character turning point that doesn't appears over determined and under earned maybe a little bit um but you know my kind of my feeling about the movie really boils down to the performances are so much better than the underlying material that McDormand is obviously a revelation in the film it deserves a nomination you know, it's quite something and it's her mostly grim-visaged, monomaniacal drive for justice um, and and uh, th- th- that's really at the center of the movie. I mean, she's in virtually every frame of the film and to the extent that the, the film has a deep question it's asking, it's about where justice and revenge uh, b- blend into one another and once they've blended, where do you stop You know, violence and, and, and really nihilism from kind of taking over? And um, to the extent that the film and Woody Harrelson is is terrific in the movie. I mean, for the for the movie to be playable at all, uh, you know, he really needs to be quite an outsized figure in the in the collective you know um, mentality of this town. And you sort of believe that, even though McDonough, as an Irishman and a you know playwright and a writer of a certain kind, has not brought the United States to life in any kind of a particular or credible way, in my estimation. Um, Harrelson's performance transcends that completely. So you do have these 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 kind of major linchpins um, that are working, which is why the movie's watchable. But I found very little of it uh, believable or, or motivated in a way. And, um, you know, there's this tendency towards snark in the small stuff, right? So the dialogue and the humor is driven by a kind of verbal pettiness and 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 tendency to kind of insult or whatever, which I don't find funny. I, I, I have never admired his work. Going back to the Beauty Queen of Linane, which I saw on Broadway, he he just has a he has a sense of humor that I don't find funny and many, many people do, and the problem might be mine. But so it's it's very hard for me to overcome that to begin with. But at, at a larger level what has to happen to make the whole picture work is Rockwell's transformation. It just has to be believable. and and Or he I, has to not transform. I mean, I think the strong argument can be made and some are making it yeah. that, you know, that as he's set up, that giving him any kind of that we, basically that we don't care about his interiority, that he's been established as enough of a, a malevolent systemic force in the ebbing missouri Mm. police system that his personal redemption at the end which we won't get into the details of but you know the last half hour or so is devoted to it is just not only an unnecessary but a kind of a a vicious plot development that undermines the humanity of what comes before well Mm -hmm. and i had a hard time when i initially saw the movie having seen critiques of it and its racial politics on twitter it felt like some of those were critiques of the movie that wasn't made or critiques of the idea of ever having a racist cop be the protagonist of any drama. And I do not buy that. Like, just because such people are reprehensible and horrible doesn't mean that you couldn't make an interesting movie that that featured one in a central role and and sought to examine them. And so I had an instinctive itchiness that someone was saying that a fictional representation of such a character was off limits and that 
made me initially kind of defensive of the movie. Like, sure, this kind of movie can exist. Like, there can be multiple kinds of art in the world. Chill out. But then the way he begins to circle potential redemption, and it's not pure redemption at the end. There's sort of, um, there's a misguided thrust in a good direction and then a misguided thrust in a bad direction. And it's a little, the movie ends on an ambivalent note about whether he and Francis McDormand will ever move past their problems. But the fundamental flaw in the structure of the film is that it it puts in parallel two fundamental problems of having grief at having a raped and murdered daughter and having been an abused wife cement into irresponsible, dangerous rage on the part of Francis McDormand. An utter, utterly as, believable trajectory, I think, in this movie's world. Yeah, and because of her performance, on the same level as uh, just having been a racist idiot and then sort you of know, had, had one uh, intervention that made you think twice about being a violent racist idiot. Right. Basically, I think people are saying that he gets off the hook far, far too easily. And I mean, also just that for a movie that look at this, I mean, so much of our conversation has been about racist violence, but there are barely any black characters in the movie. This is all kind of hearsay that we hear about earlier behavior of his character before the movie, which mainly involves white character stories begins. And one black character that we do see who's this sort of manic pixie dream co-worker of Frances McDormand at the souvenir shop where she works in Ebbing is at one point thrown into jail for some kind of bogus marijuana possession bust, essentially to kind of keep her off the case, I believe. This is a very vague part of the story, and you don't really know this character. To discourage yeah. Frances McDormand from harassing the police department. Right, right. She's put in jail to punish Frances McDormand. She's let out after a few days. And the next time you see her, she's beamingly approaching Frances McDormand saying, hey, let me help you, you know, continue with your investigation. She's like a weeble wobble who just like sproings back up and is <laughs> like, hey, y'all, can I help out? And it's like, um, you were just wrongly imprisoned. Like, what the hell? Uh, let me interject, though. There is another major black character, which is the um, new police chief in the second half of the film, played by uh, Clark Peters uh, from The Wire. But um, uh Julia, nonetheless, point taken. I mean, a lot of the plot feels um, strategically motivated um, on the part of the writer rather than organically motivated from the inner lives of the characters. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, and it had something in common with another recent movie we discussed that that pairs violence and comedy in an unusual soup. It, it, watching this movie made me think a lot about I, Tanya, which we just recently watched and discussed, and that it's about a strong woman who makes mistakes and has a hard life and is winning and adds up to something that doesn't where where the the actions don't all have the appropriate moral weight they actually feel quite related to me i mean and and one of the issues that the that i have with the movie again upon thinking it over is the way that it treats w- women it has this incredibly strong female performance at its center but it seems to want you to rah rah Frances McDormand's difficult violence, even though when you think about it, it's actually horrible. The stuff she does is horrible. She does so many horrible things. She's like kicking children and um, committing an act at the end that, uh, despite her pursuit of justice, will render justice much more difficult to earn for many other victims of crimes in the area. Um, Like it just, when you think about it for more than a minute, the whole thing kind of falls apart. It seems like it's thriving on little energies and conflicts scene to scene, but the underlying structure is just totally rotten. I'm going to push back on two things, one of which is that I do find this movie funny more toward the first hour than the second, but there's something about that um, that almost sadistic relationship to the audience that McDonough has where he jerks you from one emotion to another that I admire the virtuosity of, and it does make me laugh, especially when Frances McDormand is delivering the lines. And also, Julia, I would say that that problem you have with the shift of Frances McDormand's character from someone who we can rah-rah in her in her dogged pursuit of justice to someone who is performing genuinely dangerous and violent acts is really something that's taken up by the screenplay. I don't think that Martin McDonough is unaware or not dealing with the fact that her desire for vengeance has curdled into hatred and violence, which itself will engender more violence. And I think that's kind of, whether you're comfortable with it or not, is kind of the message of the last half yeah. of the movie and yeah. what makes it a little bit of like the first act of a Greek tragedy. It's like the first play of the Oresteia, and you can only imagine what horrible acts will will ensue going forward from the fact that these people haven't dealt with their grief. So, I mean, there's a lot that this movie gets off or doesn't quite get right, but the idea that it's 
just lazily asking us to cheer her on, I don't think is quite No, true. that's right. The, the point is that she ends up essentially in the same moral and emotional pickle as the racist, horrible cop we've been reviling all along. And, and that curdled sentiment. All right, maybe you've swung me around to liking it again. I mean, if nothing else, Frances McDormand does a towering job of making us, if not exactly sympathize, just always keep our t- attention and energy focused on this really difficult to like woman. Hmm. And I really hope she gets some recognition for it in, in award season. That's one of my few horses I'm going to be riding to the Oscars this year. I will not put a pike in front of that horse. Pike mm-hmm. down. All right, the panel is uh, somewhat split on three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. So break the tie at facebook.com slash culture fest. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Well, before we go any further, I think we might have some business. Dana, what what do you have? Yes, the business of the new year. First of all, our next live show is coming up in January of 2018. Please join us on Tuesday, January 23rd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Filmmaker Lodge live at the Sundance Film Festival for an exclusive show presented by Dropbox. We're going to be joined by Aisha Harris of Slate's great podcast, Represent, for a special joint show featuring onstage interviews with some of the festival's leading creators to discuss their work. Again, that's going to be on Tuesday, January 23rd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at the Filmmaker Lodge at Sundance. And tickets are free, so if you're going to be at Sundance, go and register now, get a free ticket. There are still some left. And don't forget, there's also going to be a live Hit Parade show on January 18th at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Hit Parade, if you don't know, is the wonderful pop music podcast hosted by our frequent guest, Chris Melanfi. It's a really great podcast. There are still some tickets left for the Hit Parade show on January 18th, so get them while they last at slate.com slash live. We also want to tell you about another Slate podcast this week, and this gets a little awkward for me because it's basically my podcast, the spoiler special in which we visit TV shows, movies, when I'm hosting it, it's movies, when Willa Paskin hosts its TV shows, and we spoil them. We do all the things that a critic can't do in a review and just get deep into the details, which, for example, we weren't just able to do with Three Billboards. But if there were a spoiler special for Three Billboards, which we haven't recorded yet, you just dig right in there and reveal who dies, who does what to whom, and what it all means. The very next one, which will release on January 12th, is hosted by Willa Paskin and is about the new season of Black Mirror on TV. So if you're a Black Mirror watcher and you want to hear Willa get deep into the spoily details, then subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special in the Spoiler Special feed. And I hope you'll become a listener. In Slate Plus today, we will be doing another listener question. We never got to this question, and it's sort of silly, but its silliness made it seem like a fun little plus topic for the beginning of the year. It's what is your current clothing obsession? What's the item of clothing that you're returning to over and over again? So each of us will come forth with some closet confessions in Slate Plus. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it's a great way to support us and the work we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, back to the show. I think we've promoted enough. Frank Olson was a military scientist at work on a super top secret program involving biological weapons. This was in the 50s at the height or maybe in the depths of the Cold War when he was dosed with LSD by CIA colleagues who were eager to know whether they could control the mind of the enemy. They were curious about the hallucinogen's efficacy as a truth serum or maybe a method for inducing memory loss. Olson subsequently dove, fell, was pushed or dropped. It's never been clear from a 13th floor hotel window. This is 1953, having become despondent and confused thanks to the drug. His son Eric was at the time a boy and has spent a lifetime trying to get to the truth of what happened. Now Errol Morris, the visionary documentarian, has made a 240-minute 
part feature, part doc. It's uh, on Netflix and uh, in limited theatrical release using extensive archival footage, new interviews. But at the center of it, I think it's fair to say, is Eric himself now in late middle age, an articulate, sensitive, aware and self-aware human being working through the historical, but also I would say psychological and finally really even spiritual questions surrounding the loss of his father. Uh, in the clip that we're about to hear, you will hear the voice of uh, Eric. Rouette was the one who told me, he says, your father was in New York, he had an accident, he fell or jumped out the window, and he died. And I was completely paralyzed by this, not only because this was the news that your father has died, that in a way was the least of it. He had an accident, and he fell or jumped out the window. And how do these terms comport with each other? If he jumped out the window, how is that an accident? But on the other hand, what does it mean to say you fell out of a hotel room window? What does that even mean? What does that look like? A lot of my childhood and youth were spent kind of juggling these terms around. How does fall, jump, and accident how can you arrange this triangle of terms so that this thing gets sorted out in any possible way? Julia, let me start with you. Um, I kept asking not um, why did Errol Morris make a documentary out of the Eric and Frank Olson story, but how did it take him so long? I mean, this seems to be a topic screaming out for the Morris treatment. What did you think? It is a topic that screams out for the Errol Morris treatment in that it centers on Memory, mystery, knowability, uh, potential malfeasance of the U.S. government, uh, secretive institutions. It's got it's got a, it's got a lot of the good stuff. I mean, Errol Morris is so Catholic in his capabilities that some of his work features that stuff, and some of his work doesn't. But um, it's it's definitely up the Errol Morris alley. I found myself, however, not in love with the end result here, which takes its time circling this story. I mean, it's, it's six 40-odd-minute episodes, um, and I found myself wishing that it were one 90 to 110-minute documentary. I mean, the documentary is set up as being about the mystery of Frank Olson and whether he fell or jumped out that window after unwittingly taking LSD as part of some CIA experiments. Um and, you know, the, the the structure of the film is set up to really be about that story and the mystery of that story. It has fictional flashbacks in which Frank Olson's character is played by Peter Sarsgaard. The opening credit sequence of the first episode is this long, fascinating slow-mo shot of Peter Sarsgaard falling the 13 floors. But really, the the heart at the core of this is Eric is this man who grew up in uncertainty, uncertainty about his father, uncertainty about the government who pursued this investigation, who, you know, he's a questing questioner a la Errol Morris. And it becomes clear as the episodes proceed that Errol Morris has found kind of a fascinating, curious, skeptical, questioning, wounded mind um, in, as you say, Steve, this very sensitive, articulate, fascinating son who's kind of led this set of continuing investigations um, at one point going so far to as to have the body of his father exhumed. I don't know. Like, I sort of just wish it were, like, fog of war, just, er- just Eric Olson talking to us, and then more concrete facts. The movie pulls in then a whole array of potential misdeeds by the U.S. government in different branches, different bodies, different theaters of operation that don't feel like one story. They feel like ambient suspicion around this quest that Eric Olson is on to figure out what happened. And the whole thing just felt flabby, as did this long time it took me to lay out that <laughs> set of problems. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a form, and, form and function thing here. Um, yeah, I just wish it were like Eric Olson talking to us. 
He's he's the burning heart. And to of it. Errol Morris, I mean, the connection that they establish is really interesting, and something that Errol Morris has done in virtually every documentary for decades. He doesn't do, which is use his interrotron device, you know, his way of filming subjects that gives them this direct relationship to the camera, where you don't see the interviewer and you feel that they're relating directly to you. Errol Morris chooses not to do that specifically, and sits in a room with his subject, with Eric, and does over-the-shoulder shots and makes sure that you can see them both and see the space around them, and all that I think is a really interesting, great. Choice. Choice. The things that happen between them, and I agree, Julia, they, they emerge sort of as soulmates, like epistemologically obsessed soulmates, Eric and, and Errol Morris over the, the course of the documentary. But that all feels so vital that I kind of agree with you that the Peter Sarsgaard reenactments feel like puff, but or puff is the wrong word, but maybe like excrescence somehow that doesn't that doesn't need to be there or doesn't mm. need to be there as much. And yet, I mean, I have to say that I'm coming from a place of like incredible respect and reverence for Ed- Errol Morris. I love I've loved so much of his work and he's such an innovator in this field. And when he does a reenactment, I respect it a priori so much more than basically any other documentarian's reenactment. So I really wanted to get with Wormwood, especially because a lot of critics I loved were really ecstatic about it and talked about it like a movie. And uh, and to me, it feels like it had it's it's a Netflix show. It feels like Julie says a, a bit long. I could use some condensation. Is it just that my attention span is rotted? Is it my fault that I can't be utterly entranced by Wormwood? I mean, the quality of the reenactments is amazing. They look beautiful, and uh, mm. and they're made with a very specific mood and tenor, and very well acted. Yeah, I love that Sarsgaard and right. Blake Nelson. They're, they're not bad. They just are they necessary? Yeah. What well, do you think, Steve? Adjudicate. I, I will adjudicate. Um, I think they. Uh, uh, I think they're completely necessary, and I I didn't find myself wishing this was a minute shorter. Um, and furthermore, I think this kind of fog of Cold War stuff is critical because they're trying to get at the question of what Frank Olson knew and um and as part of the puzzle of whether or not he was killed by the CIA assassinated according to protocol totally consciously and totally strategically and totally cold-bloodedly by the CIA for what he knew not only relative to LSD but to the development and uh, of germ warfare methods and their deployment in the theater of war in Korea. So th- those questions to me aren't just mood setting or kind of woo-woo, kind of paranoid Cold War woo-woo. They get to the essence of the of the central question, which is what motivated, and one of the lawyers for the family identifies this quite explicitly, that, you know, the, to, to set a little bit of background here, um, it, the amount that the CIA and the U.S. government, and in fact, President Gerald Ford himself, was willing to cop to publicly um, surrounding the death, you know, um, uh, the abuse of the goodwill and the patriotism of of, uh, Frank Olson and his eventual death is remarkable and indicates that there probably was a a lot more going on. Um, Among the principal reasons that the family, especially Eric, continued to pursue it was that the government wouldn't the major thing they wouldn't cop to was why so i think you have a lot of things going on at once in wormwood and if you tried to condense them they would simply clash or be somewhat incoherent or too compressed so one of them is the hamlet like uh, quest for justice in the face of a father who's been murdered by poison in one way or another um and um and at the center of that is the story of eric a story of eric and what i love i mean to me he is so powerful that the whole thing coheres around it. And the reason he is, he's almost hes almost an anachronism. I mean, he's a kid of a cold warrior um, who grows up in the 60s, uh, fatherless, and it, it goes into psychology almost to try to find answers or at least something like a coherent worldview. I mean, he's very articulate about this. It wasn't just that his father disappeared. It's that a whole set of premises about life, both personally and about the United States, were completely shattered from him virtually from the beginning of his life. And nonetheless, he's a very sober, very articulate, very sane human being. And so you've got Eric at the center of it. You've got a not at all fanciful analogy to Hamlet, which the film draws explicitly, both Eric and Errol Morris. You've got, I think the reason why you see Errol Morris in frame in this documentary is that he realized this person was deeply simpatico to him and he thought it was too clinical to be detached from him and use his special Errol Morris device. And so he put himself in frame 
additionally, here's why I think the reenactments work is you need to be reminded that these were actual people doing these things um, at a very specific period in American life. And contemporary interviews don't convey that enough, I think. And um, archi- you know, archival footage makes it seem like it comes from an antique past. And I-, I think what they've done that's very interesting is that they haven't overextended themselves in the reenactments. They're not, they're not short. They take up a large portion of the film, but they're not overwritten. And they're not, to the best of my knowledge, speculatively overwritten. They seem drawn from the specific bits of information um, that have leaked out and dribbled out over the decades about this horrible death. Yeah, I think I agree. The, re- the reenactments can't be taken out and have it be the same project and, and accomplish the thing that it's trying to accomplish. But I still think that there's some some bloat going on in this project, or maybe even just the way it's divided, the way it's these like six 48-minute long episodes. It felt like it felt like a little bit too too long to tell the story that it needed to tell somehow. And I, I feel bad saying that because I like things to take as long as they need to take. And I appreciate the ambition of that of that project. But a technique that Errol Morris uses here that I absolutely loved, and I think that is really thematically relevant to the story he's telling, is one of collage, which in a way Errol Morris has always done. He's big on, and we talked about tabloid, I think, his his documentary tabloid oh, here. Yeah. He's very big on flashing up, you know, newspaper headlines and overlaying them with photos from the time and creating these kind of photo collages on screen and uh, and generally telling a story using all of this multimedia material. And that happens to precisely echo something that Eric Olson has obsessively done his whole life, which is make these scrapbooks in which he's sort of making art, but he's also sort of trying to understand his father's death. And we get a little bit of time. I wish we had more time paging through these scrapbooks that Eric Olson has made over the years. And this collage technique also includes incorporating really beautifully, I thought, and and almost always in a necessary context, some clips from Laurence Olivier's production of Hamlet, from his film version of Hamlet, which, uh, which does have all kinds of uncanny parallels with the Olsen story. So the way that those two ways of art making lay over each other, I think, is really one of the strengths of this show. Well, and not just made, but studied. Eric Olsen, who's, as we've said multiple times, so smart and sensitive, also studied, uh, I believe, in graduate school, the relationship between collage and psychology, um, and sort of almost the philosophy and psychology of collage, which, again, circles back around to what what kinship there is and what soulmates Eric Olsen and Errol Morris seem to be. Uh, and that is what's at the power of the film. But I just, I mean, I also think it's something about the Netflix viewing experience versus the theatrical experience. Like maybe if I'd gone to see this and it's 220 minute chunks in a movie theater. 240, and, I think. And had been completely held captive instead of had the slightly more distractive, like I'm staring at a small screen in a plane in the sky type viewing experience that I had. I would have been more pinned down by it and and lost in the whole thing. I do think mm. if you here would be my recommendation. If you love Errol Morris and you're like an Errol Morris completist, or if you're intrigued by CIA mysteries, you should see this. But see if you can contrive to see it in its limited theatrical release. Like go see it, go see the doubleheader at a theater. Like I wish I'd seen it that way. I think I would have liked it more. Yeah, I think I may agree. I didn't realize it had a theatrical release. All right, go see it in the movie theater. Take a snack. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, since my thumb is way up in the air, I'll say if you can't see it in the theater, you should at least try it. I wasn't convinced. I mean, I was sort of echoing a lot of your thoughts about halfway through the first episode, maybe even into the second one. But as I really began to connect with Eric and and um and just the Cold War, I mean, the the kind of we forget, I think, a little too easily that the you know Cold War was prosecuted in um really, really grim, hypocritical, and compromised ways very often. I thought those two things really came together to make something compelling. At that point, I was hooked. So I'm going to say watch it no matter what, but um, uh, I'd be very curious to hear what our listeners make of this. Um, So anyway, it's Wormwood by Errol Morris on Netflix. All right, moving on. All right, well, it is that time of year. It's Slate's Movie Club, one of the highlights uh, in the publication, in my estimation. Um, But uh, Dana, let me start with you very, very quickly. Um, Talk a little bit about who's in Movie Club uh, this year. But um, more, more, more sort of generally, it just feels as though it was a terrific year in movies that, that you could 
you know, kind of come up with plausibly 20, 25 titles that might go on a top 10 list. A very, very good mix of blockbusters like Wonder Woman and small movies like um, uh, Call Me By Your Name. I mean, there's just, it just did not feel at all like a, uh, like a weak year um, quality wise for film. Uh, quite the opposite. One of the best I remember in years. You, would you agree with that impression? That seemed about right. Yeah, that does feel right to me. And I'm not sure that I felt it at the time the year was unfolding because this year felt like it was not about movies and it was all about, you know, political trauma and all of us trying to adjust to our new Trumpian reality. And yet when the end of the year came and it was time to start assessing and making lists and gathering people together for movie club, I started to realize that we were overflowing with great movies to talk about. And uh, and yeah, I could easily I did stick to 10 on my list, but I could easily have gone way over. And that's part of what Movie Club is about is containing the excess that bubbles over from the top of, of all those lists. As for who's in it, we have such a good lineup this year. And maybe that's part of why I'm really feeling it. I'm really, really enjoying this week that we're writing it. And it goes up a little bit later. It's starting to post this week, but we've been writing it for a whole week now. And uh, my co-conspirators this week are Mark Harris, our frequent guest on this show, and a great film historian and industry analyst and film essayist who writes here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Amy Nicholson, great critic who formerly was at MTV and is now freelancing for many places, including the LA Times, I believe, and who's also done Movie Club before and is absolutely great at it. And someone who's never done it before, Kay Austin Collins of The Ringer, who is a critic who's caught my eye over the past year just for his wit and insight and really unique way of approaching film. And so he happily agreed to do it. So it is the four of us and five posts a piece per day over the over the course of five days. So by the end of Movie Club, you've got reams and reams and reams of writing and thinking and kibitzing about the year's movies. And I, I actually really love that sense of kind of abundance. Like we've been writing, I don't know, I guess I've written three to 4,000 words for Movie Club now, and I'm only halfway through. Movie Club is one of my absolute favorite annual slate staples. Um, and I think I've mentioned this before when we've discussed it on the show, but in my very in my application to work at Slate, written in December of two thousand and two, uh, I was asked to, as part of the process, write about a feature on Slate and what worked about it and what did not, and and what what I thought it meant about what Slate was. And I talked about how great the movie club was and how fun it is to read criticism in conversation because you hear different perspectives and it helps you think about your own perspective. And that's. Uh, funny that that's what I wrote about, given oh, that we've now been doing the show for 10 years, which is That is sweetly about- honoring. Although, of course, David Edelstein was running the club at that point. It was Slate's movie critic and not me. But I'm still honored because I inherited the mantle from him. And I also loved reading the feature before I ever worked for Slate. Um, okay. So one of my favorite things about Movie Club, though, is that you always end up sussing out interesting themes or conflicts or debates or trends that weren't apparent at the time. So what have been a few places where the conversation has centered? That's a good question. Well, let's see. Some of the fault lines so far, I mean, I think we probably usually start off with kind of the big critical fault lines, the ones that if you're a member of film Twitter, you're well aware of the backlashy circles that have already taken place in talking about them. And so one of them, for example, was the debate about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri that we just had in in that segment, uh, which is a movie that's really divided people and is good to have critical fights about. That's only sort of just begun. Only a couple of us have weighed in on it. I'm sure there'll be more coming. There was a really interesting exchange between Cameron, Chaos and Collins, and and Mark Harris about the representation of gay sex on film and about whether or not, and this is something that's been debated in the pages of Slate as well, I believe, whether or not Call Me By Your Name is too bourgeois and restrained in its representation of the physical relationship between Elio and Oliver, the two lovers at its center. We didn't talk about that aspect that much in our segment on Call Me By Your Name in the Gabfest, but it is a movie that, you know, the camera sort of slides away at the moment that Elio and Oliver are kind of consummating their relationship. And some queer critics and audiences have received that as a, a kind of evasion or dishonesty or capitulation to sort of making heterosexual audiences comfortable. And so that's a debate. It's an interesting question to bring up, especially in the context of a generally strong year for LGBTQ movies in which other movies made different choices in that domain. And one movie that I bring up in my last post, which is on my list, my top 10 list for the year, and is a movie I adore that I hope we'll do a segment on here at some point, is BPM, the French movie about uh, the ACT UP movement in the early 90s, which is a little more head-on in its in its representation of gay sex, but also formulates that very question, the question of, you know, what should an activist group show of itself? How, what, how should an activist group sort of portray its movement to a not necessarily friendly outside world? And how 
in your face do they want to be? So that question of in your face gay sex has come up. And I found that exchange especially valuable because it's happening between two gay male critics. So to hear that they each have this slightly different point of view about the purpose and function of explicit sex or not in gay movies was really fascinating to me. Another thing that sort of opened up across several of the posts and that I'm sure will be pursued is, you know, questions about platforms and the future of movies versus TV. And I mean, things that, again, have relate back to our Errol Morris segment and whether that should have been a movie or a TV show. Right. I mean, a big debate among critics, a very silly one, I think, this year was whether Twin Peaks The Return, that multi-part David Lynch series um, in which he brings back Twin Peaks, counted as a movie because he's a filmmaker. I don't know, because he uses cinematic techniques. To me, it seemed sort of a crazy question. But we are in this era when, you know, all of those definitions are starting to converge as what it is to watch a moving image on a screen explodes into so many different platforms and and different directions. Yeah. And I think the inciting moment for that conversation is that Sight and Sound, which does a well-regarded and prestigious year-end list of the best movies, like included it high, I think, on its list as as a number two of the best movies of the year. And then Film Twitter was like, Whoa! <laughs> um, which was maybe part of the point. But anyway, that those formal questions do seem like a key thing to consider. I'm excited to read that. Yeah, it's no longer abstract to say, what is the future of theatrical filmmaking? It's something that's happening in every, you know, buying decision at Sundance. Like, how is something going to be seen and by whom at what time? Right. So um, I, I, I love that ongoing debate i mean it just it just speaks to an amazing amount of ferment and and fertility in both streaming uh tv and you know home viewing streaming home viewing and 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 theatrical release then i'm really curious what what were the point points of most sort of ironclad consensus and and most fractious uh, dissension in terms of specific films was there a movie that you know, someone thought absolutely was one of the three or four best, but someone else thought absolutely ought to be excluded. And and what was a movie that 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 um like BPM, for example, that I haven't seen that that our listenership might not be that familiar with that everyone thought was remarkable and and wanted to encourage people to go see. That's a great question, but it's a little bit early in the club. We are literally at hump day. We're in the middle of round three of of five rounds. And so I don't think things like breaking down into hashing it out about movies that don't deserve to be talked about has gotten to yet. I think things get more idiosyncratic and cranky toward the end of the week, which is fun. You know, it's more like people standing up and championing their weird misfit outlier movie that no one is talking about. And right now we're still talking about movies that lots of people are talking about. So that's hard to answer. I mean, I tried to champion BPM, especially because I'm really annoyed that BPM for some reason, probably some Oscar qualifying rule reason that I don't understand, was not put up as a French foreign language nominee for the Academy Awards, which is going to hugely reduce the number of people that want to go see it over the next few months as it opens wide across the U.S. So I was definitely waving my pink pom-poms, which if you've seen the movie, pink pom-poms actually feature in the ACT UP demonstrations in the movie. But I was waving mine for the movie pretty hard at Movie Club because I really want people to see it. Um, I think there's certainly so far has been a big consensus on Get Out. I mean, Get Out is a very hard movie to dislike or to proclaim is not worthwhile. And I'm very curious how that will play out in award season, because as I think we mentioned when we talked about Get Out here, you know, when it comes to awards, it's not always the uh, unquestionably greatest movie of the year that gets the Oscar by any means. It's the most Oscar-y movie, right? The movie that sort of no one can hate. And uh, and Get Out is both a movie that everyone loves, but also a movie that touches all kinds of very hot places and nerves in the American psyche and is maybe not kind of awards bound for that reason. But awards aside, it's something that critics love to talk about. So actually, another big debate we had in the first, I believe, round of Movie Club instigated by me was about the two endings to get out. When we all talked about it on this show, it had only been released in theaters. And so we all saw the ending we saw. But when the DVD was released, an alternate ending that Jordan Peele had made and decided not to use was included and is now circulating on the internet. So we talked about the relative merits of those two very different endings, which I really recommend before you read Movie Club or just before you think about Get Out and have a conversation about it again, that you go watch the alternate ending and think about why it might or might not have made it onto the screen. I don't know if we mentioned here yet, but I wrote a post for Slate explaining why I will take it as a great dereliction of all award givers' responsibilities if Get Out doesn't get nominated for and win Best Picture. A very long shot, but I... I demand it. I read that and I was touched by it and agree with it. And I'd love to see you write it popping up to write on movies once in a while. But I have to prepare you for disappointment. Oh, it's no. Oscar time, man. I know. You cannot get, you can't I know. tie your heart up in anything. You really, really can't. 
No, I know that it will not happen for all the reasons of it having been a, of it being a comedic horror film to unloved genres that came out in February, very long ago. But just like, it's so fresh. I mean, there have been so many good movies this year. There have been so many good movies. Like, I won't be, I won't be mad if Lady Bird wins. I won't be mad if Call Me By Your Name wins. I haven't even seen Phantom Thread yet. I'm sure I'm going to be into it. Like, it, it feels hard to hate some of the strong contenders. I, we haven't seen Darkest Hour. I haven't seen The Post. Like, we've got so many good Oscar movies to talk about in the next couple of weeks. But I just, it was so good. And it was so good in such an exciting new way. And it was so good in such a topical, important way. And so many people saw it and it made mm-hmm. movies so central. Like, I would just want to grab everybody by the lapels and be like, get in, get in, with, get with Get Out. Get on, right. get out. I, it, yeah. it, it is an amazing thing to have a movie that you passionately, passionately believe should win, which is sort of how I feel about Get Out. Too, I kind of echo all those same thoughts. At the same time, you'll be completely unoffended if one of four or maybe even five or six other movies wins. I mean, it just shows you how deep and strong true excellence, not just that there were 15 really good movies this year, but there are four or five that seem remarkable. Uh, it's just, I, it really is, It's. I mean, Dana, does, has anyone offered or do you have at the back of your, in your back pocket, a theory as to why? I mean, my impression is, I mean, is it that they're directly competitive now with home viewing and home viewing is so geared towards super high quality critic bait uh, uh, product that theatrical release just has to do this in order to stay relevant? I mean, do you have a sense of why? Has to do what? 2017. Be good. So good. <laughs> it has to be good or else people won't go. I mean, look, this was the whole, this, as you know, Dana, this was the whole thing in the 60s when people stopped going to movies because of TV and Hollywood had its worst uh, for worst financial decade ever. And what they finally found was that there were, that, that you could bring young people and and educated urbanites into movie theaters in the droves by showing them something they could not find on TV, which is, you know, MASH was the first movie to use the word fuck in it, right? Like it was as simple as like people will talk like people, they'll swear, there'll be nudity, there'll be violence, we'll grapple with the Vietnam War, we'll grapple with Watergate, and all of a sudden audiences returned. I mean, it, it, you know, being forced by commercial exigency to do something um introspective, socially introspective, important, well-written, smart. You know, if you're not forced, you won't do it. And it just feels as though maybe that shift has happened again. I don't know. I mean, I wish I had the belief in the film industry that that, that statement seems to hold. The, oh, the I idea thought it was that, cynical. They're I mean, just, they, you know, if so? they have to, they will. And if they don't, they won't. Right. I mean, I just, I, I, I don't think that major distribution channels and major Hollywood studios are making the decisions of what they're going to make based on, oh, geez, we better start making some good movies. I think everybody involved, even in the shittiest movies of the year, thought they were making good movies and was trying to make something that would, you know, do well at the box office and get people in seats as well as expressing whatever vision or idea it was supposed to express. I don't think that Hollywood, to use that very big metonymical term for the movie industry, understands or knows how to solve the problem they're having getting people into theaters. And I, I can't quite get to the point of saying that the the rash of good movies that seems to have come upon us this year is in some way a result of that of that problem. It still feels mm-hmm. like they're slipping in between the cracks, in other words. Like the impression that I get as a non-industry analyst who's outside of L.A. and is not reading Variety and The Hollywood Reporter every day is that that system is still dependent on the old model of big old tentpole blockbusters that will be bought in China and seen all over the world. And, you know, if there's a little bit of space in between the cracks for a smaller mid-budget movie to get through and make some money as a sort of surprise sleeper hit, all the better. But I don't think that the industry is sitting there trying to figure out how we get more get-outs and more phantom mm-hmm. threads. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that those those are still little beauteous sprouts that are sprouting up between the cracks somehow. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that, that the sprouting is happening. And maybe if those movies become commercial successes and get awards and earn, earn prestige, there will be more room in the sidewalk for more sprouts. I love it. I, either way, I love them as beauteous sprouts or um, cynical ploys or, or you know, high-minded uh, sentiment. I don't care. I'm just amazed. I mean, you know, in the in the arc of doing this show, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It is amazing how much better on a week-to-week basis the product that we're engaging with is. It is, I, I honestly, I think it's night and day, especially over the last three, to three, two, three, four years. All right, well, um, the big takeaway here is that the movie club is posting on Slate. It's that time of year. It is an absolute highlight of the publication. I agree with Julia Turner on this. Uh, it's a great roster of critics this year, uh, led as always by Dana. So go um, go check it out at slate.com. All right, moving on.
All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to keep it simple and silly for my first endorsement of the new year. This was something I discovered on Twitter over the break on the account of one of my favorite tweeters, Owen Ellickson. His handle is O-N-L-X-N, just the letters, which itself is a pretty good joke. And uh, I started following this guy who I have no idea who he is. He's a funny guy who lives in Los Angeles because during the election, he would create, and remember this was back in the days of 140 characters, he would create these incredible little playlets among the different sort of characters in the election. He would just imagine like little mini conversations among Trump and his handlers or Hillary and her handlers or Loretta Lynch and Clinton on the tarmac. And they were all just just these very enigmatic, funny little playlets. And then immediately after the election, there was a day when he just posted, you know what? What just happened is so horrible. I now feel really awful about what I'm doing and I can't keep on doing these playlets. So it's the end of my political playlet writing career. But I kept on following him. He continued to be funny and interesting about whatever he was talking about. And then I just discovered this epic thread that he's been doing since at least November, um, but picked it back up again in December over Christmas break about playing Scrabble with his father, who apparently I'm not going to get the exact details right. But Owen Ellickson's father is some sort of Scrabble champ who's you know gone to world championships and had all kinds of success in competitive Scrabble. And each Christmas or Thanksgiving or whenever they get together, he apparently challenges his grown son to a Scrabble match. And and Owen Ellickson live tweets these matches so hilariously, photographing the board, showing his father's strategy, expressing his own sort of Hamlet-like insecurity that he'll never <laughs> reach his father's Scrabble heights. And then at one point, his father starts coaching Owen Ellickson's own young son about tile values and all these Scrabble strategy questions. And so, of course, Owen Ellickson has a whole big comedy about how he feels threatened now from both both ends of the generation <laughs> in Scrabble. Anyway, he's a hilarious writer, really, really fun to follow on Twitter. You'll enjoy him in general, but see if you can find his, uh, his, his Scrabble thread. I think with a little Googling around, you can get to it. And he threads it well, so you can read it all the way back through Thanksgiving. All right. Following that guy right now. That's a very Julia endorsement. <laughs> uh, superb. Julia, what do you have? Um, my endorsement circles back around to a prior endorsement and will conclude with a request. I think about a year ago, I endorsed In the Woods, the Tana French book, the first book in her Dublin murder squad. And the content of my endorsement was essentially, Laura Miller is right. Laura Miller has written about and I believe on our show endorsed the books of Tana French. I have now read the first one. It is great. Everybody should read Tana French. She is um, a writer, I actually believe an American expat who's lived in Ireland for a long time um, and writes these linked detective series based in the Dublin murder squad where a pair of detectives is trying to solve a horrible murder of some kind. Often the protagonists of the previous books appear in some kind of scant circling role uh, in the next book. I have just finished the sixth and last of these books, or last so far, called The Trespasser, and it's so good uh, and I just want to report from the other end of the Tana French Tunnel that I stand by and double my endorsement. If you are looking for a great, really well-written, won't make you sad that you're reading it, procedural, that's absorbing and full of fascinating plot, these six books are excellent. They're quite distinct. They really don't feel um, like kind of the cookie-cutter template of the previous book. They play with similar elements and themes, but they're always stacking them up in some slightly interesting different way, some slightly interesting different focus. I like some of them more than others, but each of them is completely worth your time. And this sixth book, The Trespasser, is so great. So please, if you have any mystery reading inclination whatsoever, if you're looking for any kind of absorbing plotty narrative, do not delay. Read the books of Tana French. And I would recommend reading them all in order. This last one is really good, but in some ways what makes it great is having read all the other ones that build up to it. Well, isn't a thing that she does, I have a very good friend who is also all aglow about Tana French right now. Isn't one of the things she does that she takes a minor character from each previous book, a secondary character, and makes them the main character in the next book? Yeah, basically. That's, that's such a great idea, just this idea of a universe, a little bit like a Richard Linklater's Slacker, right, where if you followed any one story, it might be just as interesting as the last person's story. Yeah, it's they're so great. Um, the request comes now. I'm bereft. I have no more Tana French books to read, and I... I, I'm looking for, at this current moment in our world and my life, at night before bed, I want to be absorbed in someone else's narrative. I don't want to think about the current universe that we're in, about all of the news, about everything that we're doing here at Slate. Like, I, do, I don't want to read nonfiction. I want to be in 
a fiction world, and I want it to be very, very absorbing, either through uh, editorial excellence or through plot mechanisms. Have you done a lot of Graham Greene? Nope. Steve, you're the person who turned me on. (laughs) I'm not a mystery reader. And Steve and his wife are the people who urgently pressed on me a copy of Brighton Rock, which I still have. I need to return that one day, Stephen. And uh, I still haven't read my way through all, but I think Graham Greene's going to do it for you, for one thing. Our readers will have more suggestions and more contemporary ones, but you can't go wrong with Brighton Rock. All right. We're going to do this as a Facebook post at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. I'm going to do this on Twitter. I want like great gripping procedurals. They could be thrillers. They could be mysteries. I want something where the plot is the driver but the sentences won't make you want to stab your eyes out. Like the plot is the driver. They're functionally excellent plots. They respect the power of great plotting, but also they have good writing. So, all right. Well, can I throw a couple couple names at you in addition to Graham Greene? All right. So Graham Greene is, you know, both a genre and a literary writer and both kinds of those work have elements of the other in his work. He can't go wrong with them. He's also incredibly prolific over many decades. If you get into Graham Greene, there's a ton of it uh, awaiting you. Um, I would also say Henning Monkel and Ian Rankin, though they're, you know, I mean, they're very male in one sense, but they're both extremely good writers working in genre. Um, the Rankin, I ha- I've only read a little bit of the Rankin books, uh, Inspector Rebus, but they uh, strike me as just superbly wrought and uh, this i mean the sentences are he's a terrific writer so um anyway oh, that's great i think i read i think i read one or two henning mankles at your suggestion about five years ago so i'll see surely he's written something else since I'll, I'll well he surely him. died many years ago but oh, um, okay <laughs> there are a lot of them so if you only read a couple there'll be more <laughs> surely he did not all right yes he he didn't but um all right, so uh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna rec- I'm gonna endorse two th- two things of a type that I really love, but hadn't found um, uh, instances, fresh instances of in a long time. The first is I absolutely love it when some sort of obscure indie rock label um, puts out a, a compilation, and you've just got this huge sampler of music all of a particular era and type. So the old Rough Trade um, uh, albums, compilations are great. Uh, uh, indie pop compilations are just fantastic, though they do a lot of different genres. Another Sarah Records. I love the old Sarah Records bands. And you just get dozens of them, and um, but I found something. I just I can't. Even, it's just completely like us by Spotify. You know, um, Kismet came across something called Lost Ark A R K Studios, and I think it's a studio out in L A. that specializes in vintage equipment and recording on vintage equipment, so that you sound analog. You sound like a band playing, and not like um, you know, a multi-layer CGI. Uh, artificially uh, studio produced um, um, uh, artifact and uh, they have like eight volumes of this thing on Spotify and I just put them on a massive playlist and rotated it through over the uh, holiday weekend with friends visiting us and it was great I mean there's a lot of terrific music on there almost all of which I had never heard of so Lost Ark Studios compilations love it the second is when an art uh, exhibit um, retrospective is really beautifully hung in the sense that it's a story well told of the career arc and the life arc of an artist so that um, in addition to the power of individual works, you've got this, the collective force of this person kind of coming into their own and really becoming the artist um, that they were meant to be. And you see the early struggle against their influences. You see them toying around with subject matter and technique and then all of a sudden there's a kind of galvanic thing that happens and they begin developing a theme and a self at once and that is absolutely the david hockney exhibit i i went in uh agnostic on hockney um admiring maybe from a distance especially of what he became in in his later decades when he returned to england to do landscape work indifferent in, in but but not in a loaded way um I, I don't mean that in a loaded way indifferent to his california most famous california work go see this exhibit it's at the met until february 25th i urge us to do it as a topic you begin with a young prodigiously talented artist working with abstraction and kind of collage like or medleyed elements and 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 under the influence of francis bacon i think turning into the Hockney that we know um, when, I think, as a gay man and as a product of the English class system, he encounters California and the swimming pool and the homes of the rich in California. And you see how, you know, he's developing all kinds of interesting techniques in order to 
bring this particular landscape and its color palette, both its natural landscape and artificial landscape, to life on those on those um, canvases. Some of which are huge. I just didn't understand the scale of some of those portraits uh, with swimming pools. That he is a remarkable remarkable technician and a very original one too. The way he's thinning paint in order to get the swimming pool blues, but you also see what those swimming pools meant to him in the context of having lived in a. Um, a repressed society in which homosexuality was criminalized for almost the entirety of his, of his young life um, and, and a class-bound society and what America, especially California and especially L.A., might have meant to him. And so they're pregnant with meaning in a way that I didn't understand when I just saw them kind of iconically in reproduced images in magazines and what have you. Uh, I think it's a wonderful exhibit. It is beautifully, beautifully um, paced out and um, the text that accompanies it is unpretentious um, but also very thoughtful and deeply nuanced and sensitive to what what Hockney's journey was so uh, uh, as high a recommendation as I can possibly give and uh, I just hope uh, some proportion of our listenership can make it there all right well uh, Julia thank you thank you 2018 it's here it's good it's gonna be a good one Uh, beauty beauty sprouts it's here it's full of fear get used to it (laughs) Nah, this is a fun show. It's a great kickoff to the year. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. And we have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. For Dana Stevens and Joey Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. 